This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, breast cancer genes and what they do to men. The story is better news than many have assumed. A call to action on uncontrolled blood pressure, a high-definition picture of the genetic web driving coronary artery disease. And what happens next after Omicron? An internationally renowned epidemiologist who leads a global COVID modelling team that's made some of the most reliable predictions of the pandemic is arguing that Omicron may well mark the end of the pandemic as we know it. There are a few caveats around what variants might emerge, but it's a provocative analysis with a rare moment of hope. Professor Chris Murray is Director of the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, Seattle, and I spoke to him this morning. Happy to be back, Norman. So what is exactly you're predicting here? What I think is going to happen is that we're going to see this giant Omicron wave sweep through all the world, everywhere we'll get it, and it'll be a pretty steep increase and then a reasonably steep decline in most countries. And at the end of that wave, the population levels of immunity, both from vaccination and from infection, will be at an all-time high. Going forward, I don't think we will see for quite some time much in the way of COVID transmission. And even when the next variant comes along, I don't think we're ever going to go back to major mandates from government because the higher levels of immunity will mostly mean less severe disease and because we have this new tool available, antivirals. And as those scale up, we should see you know, a 90% reduction in death in addition to everything else that's bringing down severity. So let's just unpick that a little bit. I mean, I think you predict that, what, 50% of the world's population will be infected by the end of March? That's about right, yeah. Maybe more, but yes. So before we get to the lull that you're predicting, what I understand from the virologists and the immunologists is that Omicron is very good at protecting you against Omicron, but not necessarily very broad in terms of protection, at least in terms of the historical variants that we've had. How much immunity do you think we're going to get from this moving forward? Because that's part of your prediction. Well, you know, we, we don't have a lot of data yet. We have no data yet of actual people that have had Omicron being challenged with a different variant. What we have is some neutralizing antibody studies that so far suggest that Omicron should do a pretty good job of protecting you against Delta. That's really all the data that we have. You know, it depends on which immunologist you talk to. I think there's a sense that any form of full virus exposure, Omicron or, or Delta, is going to give you a quite diverse immune response. You know, compared to uh, somebody that's immunologically naive, unvaccinated, never infected, we will be in a state where there's almost nobody in that category. And there will be variants that, you know, have immune escape. But it shouldn't be the same as infecting somebody that's never seen the virus or a part of the virus. And what about low-income countries where there's incredibly low rates of vaccination at the moment, particularly sub-Saharan Africa? We're finally starting to see more antibody surveys being conducted in sub-Saharan Africa. And what they're showing is that a very high fraction of sub-Saharan Africa has already been infected even before Omicron. So in a place like South Africa, 60, 70% were probably previously infected. 
Now you add on this massive infection wave from Omicron. So there's very few people in Africa, despite the low vaccination rates, that have never seen the virus. And so, you know, if you think about that most at-risk category, the unvaccinated, never infected, this is the first time they see COVID, they're the ones we worry about the most. And so in some sense, Omicron is equalizing levels of immunity around the world. And just describe this lull. In the Northern Hemisphere, I think the lull could last for quite some time because you're coming out into end of in March, April, and seasonality is starting to reduce transmission anyway, or it would. And on top of that, you have these higher levels of immunity than we've had before. In the models, for example, we don't see a return of COVID till next winter. Now, of course, if a new variant comes along, it can happen at any time, but we should see the lowest ever level of transmission in that period. I think the big question mark, especially for your listeners, is going to be Southern Hemisphere. Would we see a secondary Omicron wave in the Southern Hemisphere winter? Probably not, because it may be too soon, and so immunity won't have waned enough for that to happen. So it'll all come down to a new variant in terms of having a wave before the sort of seasonally expected wave. Now, one of the things you talk about is that one of the things about moving away from a pandemic is moving away from an emergency situation with radical actions such as lockdowns. But you do prescribe the sort of things that need to be in place, masks, social distancing, public health measures and antivirals. I mean, to what extent is that part of the, if you like, epidemic control moving forward? You know, I think there's a very big distinction, Norman, between governments mandating masks and social distancing and people at risk choosing masks and social distancing. So what I believe is going to happen is we're going to see, you know, continued efforts at vaccination. We're sort of stalling globally because we're running up against in in many, but not all countries, that there aren't people left who want to get vaccinated. But, you know, keep at vaccination, keep up with the boosters as appropriate. Second part is scaling up antivirals. Third part is people have learnt ways to protect themselves, mask wearing and social distancing. And if you're older or you have comorbidities, when a new variant comes along, you may, until you know the evidence is clear that it's mild, you'll probably want to protect yourself. But I can't really see governments requiring that as we move forward. That's kind of a political statement, but government's requiring it. But what about the population health imperative there to require it? Well, I think the argument for government action around mask wearing and social distancing, which was very compelling in 2020 and even during the Delta wave, was about controlling infection. So your actions not only benefited you, but they benefited others. You know, the classic as economists refer to this as as an externality. Your actions, you know, have an impact on other people. Now that we're in this phase where COVID is so much more transmissible, It's harder to see that individual actions around reducing transmission will have much of a population health effect because even right now, even if, as we believe, masks reduce your risk of transmitting by about 50%, if your risk of getting exposed to Omicron is so great and you're going to be exposed, you know, three times a day, well, reducing that exposure down to one and a half times a day has a pretty modest effect. Again, at the population health level, most of the actions going forward are going to really be about harm reduction as opposed to 
truly trying to control infection. We've evolved to the point where it's so transmissible that seems really quite unlikely. So in summary, it's not all over Red Rover. Your biggest caveats next variant round the corner, but uh, essentially reasonably good news moving forward in 2022. Personally, absolutely. You know, I've been one of these people that's been extraordinarily careful. I haven't been on an airplane in two years. I haven't eaten indoors in a restaurant in two years. And I see in the next weeks, for me personally, that changing. I'll, I'll get back onto airplanes and I'll start eating indoors for, you know, the combination of these factors. So, yes, I think it looks promising. Well, for your frequent flyer points, I'm very happy for you, Chris. <laughs> Hopefully I won't go back to traveling that much. Yeah. Chris Murray, thank you very much for joining us on The Health Report. Thanks, Dorman. Professor Chris Murray, who had one of the biggest frequent flyer point accounts that I've ever come across. Chris is director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. And this is The Health Report on RN. High blood pressure or hypertension is one of the leading causes of death globally, including in Australia. But how often do you think about your blood pressure? About half of people with, with hypertension don't actually know they've got it. And the half who know they have it aren't usually properly treated. A group of experts is trying to change this, calling for national action on blood pressure control in a recent edition of the Medical Journal of Australia. One of the authors of that call to action is Alta Schutt from the University of New South Wales. Welcome, Alta. Uh, hi, Tegan. Nice to be on the, on the show. So we've known that hypertension is a problem for a while now. Why are you talking about it now? Yes, it's indeed been on the radar for many, many years. And I think that may be one of the reasons why there's become some level of complacency, uh, specifically here in Australia, to focus on, on raised blood pressure as, a, as an important tool to prevent cardiovascular disease. So, um, I mean, it is, as you've mentioned earlier, it's a leading cause of death globally and in Australia, and is, is one of the major factors contributing to coronary artery disease, stroke, kidney disease, and dementia. So um, why we are not addressing it is actually the real question. Uh, I think um, if, if we compare our data, for example, to other countries in the world, uh, we are, we, as a high-income country, we are certainly lagging behind. And uh, I think we have placed a lot of emphasis on addressing established cardiovascular disease, but not so much in preventing it. Uh, it, it is so common, but we can absolutely change that scenario substantially. So we're treating the symptoms of something that we could be treating much earlier on. So who is doing it well? What are they doing that we're not doing? Yes, when you look at other high-income countries, uh, Canada is really the forerunner there. So what is what is really remarkable about Canada is that in the 1980s, their blood pressure control rates have been 13%. Uh, as you've mentioned, in Australia, we sit it with a rate of 32%. That means those people with high blood pressure having it under control with medication. Um, but in Canada, they have really transformed it from 13% to 68% at the moment, and that was by developing a, a very diverse and comprehensive program, not only targeting the healthcare professionals, uh, including nurses, uh, general practitioners and, uh, and, and other healthcare workers, but also um, ensuring that on population level there are um, factors that they can address that, uh, that improves blood pressure across the life course and to have also better education programs, not only for healthcare professionals, but for the population, for the consumer. 
So there's a few things that you're calling for in your paper, um, population-based screening, measures like salt and sugar reduction, refresher courses for GPs. But if there was just one or two things that you think Australia could change to make the biggest difference, what would they be? Oh, that's a good question. I think um, <laughs> some of the most important interventions that we also on a global scale really uh, are pushing for together with the World Health Organization is to implement um, the use of single pill combination therapy uh, in as a first line treatment for high blood pressure. So I think in Australia, there's still the understanding that when a patient has high blood pressure to give a monotherapy, a single drug to treat it, but there's been overwhelming evidence that most patients, in fact, 70 to 80% of patients require two drugs to reach blood pressure control. So, uh, and, and it's standard practice here to do, to start off with, with a single uh, therapy, mono, monotherapy. So that would be, I think, one of the strongest actions I would recommend. And um, on a population level, I think an important action would also be to encourage people with high blood pressure to purchase a high-quality, high accurate, and, or what we would call a validated blood pressure device and have it at home. So self-monitoring or home blood pressure monitoring has been shown to really improve uh, control and awareness also at home. Now, not only for the, for the specific patient with high blood pressure, but also for family members. So that would be, um, I think, kind of wide-ranging um, benefit because the patient becomes engaged, they see their own blood pressures, they realise, oh, I haven't taken my medication, that m must be the reason why my blood pressure is so high. So these sort of actions can actually have a long-term uh, benefit. So tools that people can use to monitor it themselves at home. And you mentioned multi-drugs in one pill. We actually talked about it on the health report in September last year, if anyone's interested in going back and looking at that. And one of the things I noticed in your paper was that there was a decline in hypertension in Australia, a pretty like steady decline from about 1990 through to 2005, and then it sort of stalled. So what has or hasn't happened since 2005 to, to kind of have us stalled at this level? Yes, that is that is true. I think that is what many high-income countries have done right. So from the 90s to, to uh, the early 2000s, in most countries, the cardiovascular disease burden in total has really been improved because we have had fantastic new medications that really, uh, for example, not only address blood pressure, but also other cardiovascular disease like high cholesterol, etc. So those strategies and improvement in the health system overall would be, uh, to my understanding, the best uh, explanation for overall improvement. But at the same time, um, there's been other changes that take place on a population level, and we've seen many reports on, for example, the high rates of obesity we see now these days, mm -hmm. Uh, screen time for, with kids from young ages onwards that is one of the major problems we, we are facing. And I think to change those sort of behaviours on a population's level is what's needed to turn that trajectory around again and to reduce um, to reduce blood pressure. So it's a it's a such a common measurement in the population, but I think uh, we often forget about children and young adults where we don't even really look at their blood pressures. So and it's something we it need to be looking at across the lifespan. Uh, Alta, thanks so much for joining us. Okay. No, thank you very much. Professor Alta Schutt is UNS UNSW Sharp Professor and Principal Theme Lead of Cardiac, Vascular and Metabolic Medicine in the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of New South Wales. Now, blood pressure and heart disease often go hand in hand, as we've just heard. It's complicated. There's no one gene that causes these diseases, but a network of genes that then interact with the environment. 
An international team of researchers has drawn what they say might be the most comprehensive web of factors that drive atherosclerosis, the thickening and hardening of the arteries due to a build-up of plaque, which can cause heart attack and stroke. One of the authors is Jason Kovacic, who leads the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute. Hi, Jason. Hey, Tegan. How are you? Good. You've called this the culmination of a decade of work. What have you found? Yeah, Tegan, look, thanks for having me on the program. Um, look, the, the, I think the findings are profound and um, it really is the culmination of a decade or more of work. I think you can sort of conceptualise this as, look, we've known that there's that coronary artery disease and, and indeed hypertension, as we were just hearing about, and also many other diseases, obesity, uh, diabetes, other things, uh, they arise due to thousands, hundreds or even thousands of genes that all sort of interact together and lead to these different disease phenotypes. But the challenge until now has been that we haven't had the proper tools and instruments to actually study how all of these genes work and interact all at the same time to cause these diseases. So working with this international team, uh, with my colleague Johan Bjorkegren, who's from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, and also we're both formerly and still currently at the Icahn School of Medicine in Mount Sinai, New York, what we did was sample um, about 850 subjects that were having open thorax surgery. So most of them were actually subjects having coronary artery bypass graft surgery. We sampled up to nine different tissues from those patients and did high throughput uh, gene sequencing of those patients, so looking at RNA expression levels of different genes. And then that enabled us to construct and look at these complex networks of genes that are interacting using supercomputers that are housed at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. And basically, we constructed over 200 of these networks of genes. And now we understand a lot more about how these whole networks of genes work to cause these complex diseases. So it really is a big breakthrough. That's fascinating. What are the applications of this um for medicine and at an individual level? Sure. So these networks of genes, as I said, we found it was 224 of them be, to be precise that cause coronary artery disease. They do account for a large proportion of the heritable basis of this disease. And these networks uh, range in size from about 100 genes up to tens of thousands of genes. And you can think of them sort of as a three-dimensional structure of many genes interacting and all, you know, one gene changes expression levels, it changes the levels of hundreds of other genes. We know that they these are critical in causing the disease. So one immediate application is that if we focus in on key genes that are critical to the causing these diseases, if we can modulate those networks that is likely to be a very promising therapeutic approach. So the way to do that is we know that there are what are called key driver genes that are sort of at the apex or at the top of these networks of genes. And if we target these key driver genes, they've been shown in uh, several initial studies that they are likely to be fantastic and powerful therapeutic targets to help either treat patients with the disease or to prevent the disease happening in the first place. So I've got two questions to sure. answer in probably yeah. about a minute. Yeah. How, how much is personalised medicine, how much does this sort of allow for personalised medicine and how far off are these therapies? 
Yeah, personalised medicine is, is really applicable here because we can actually measure disease activity. So we can look at the activity of these networks and say, wow, this, this network's highly active, that's a problem. And we can personalise our approach to target those networks in people where they are active. So really relevant and really applicable. And how far off are the therapies? Give me Look, a ballpark. We're working, we're working now on actually targeting these these key driver genes. As you know, the, the timeline to getting something into the clinic is about five to seven years, but we're already a couple of years into that process. So I, I think it may be before the end of the decade that we're well and truly there. Super exciting stuff. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Tegan. All the best. Professor Jason Kovacic is the Executive Director of the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute. In a similar vein to heart disease, most cancers are caused by a combination of factors like diet, toxins such as smoking and pollution, being overweight or obese, lack of exercise, the steady damage of ageing and gene networks such as Jason was just talking about. But some people carry such powerful cancer genes that they significantly raise your risk of certain cancers pretty much by themselves, single genes operating alone. Two of these mutated genes are called BRCA1 and BRCA2. They're called BRCA mutations because they were first found in women with a strong family history of breast cancer at a young age. They also hugely raise the risk of ovarian cancer. The thing is, though, that men carry BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations as well. And there's been a long list of cancers, around 22, which male carriers of BRCA1 or BRCA2 have often been told they need to watch out for, including pancreas, male breast cancer, melanoma and prostate cancer. Well, that list has now been trimmed a lot, thanks to a large study of over 5,000 BRCA1 and 2 families. The lead, author, the lead author was Dr Shui Li from the University of Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. Welcome to the Health Report. Uh, hello, Norman. How are you? Very well. So this is, you know, great work. Um, so you followed these. You, you looked at the really the family history of these five thousand families. Uh, yes, we collected family histories and investigated the risks for twenty-two cancers. And what did you find? Yeah, we have found that the. Uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutation carriers, they do not only have the risks of female breast and ovarian cancers, but they, they, are also, they also have the risks of other cancers like uh, male breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, stomach cancer, and prostate cancer. But uh, there is no risk for other types of cancers. And what other, what other cancers have been blamed on the BRCA1 and BRCA2? Uh, for example, melanoma has... Uh, were thought to be related to breast, uh, BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations. But our studies has approved that, has provided evidence that melanoma may be not related to these mutations. And you found for prostate cancer, it was much more limited than pre previously thought. Uh, yes. Uh, yes, we, have, we only found that evidence that BRCA2 mutation carriers uh, have a risk of prostate cancer, but for BRCA1 mutation carriers, they were pre previously thought to have a prostate cancer risk, but our study proves that there was no risk for them at all. Now, just tell it, so we can get this into perspective, um, yeah. the first question to ask is, um, do men carry these genes at the same rate as women? Yes. And how common are they in the population, just so that we don't have um, the whole of the health report audience going into panic here? Okay, uh, how about uh, for BRCA1 mutations? About 1 in 600 
people carries this mutation. And for BRCA2 mutations, it is more common. It's about one in 350 people carry this mutation. And the uh, and it, and it's more common in certain ethnic groups such as Ashkenazi Jews. Yes. And so let's just now talk about the context of the increased risk. So if you're a woman and you get this gene, what's your lifetime risk of breast and ovarian cancer? Okay. So for the lifetime for the for the female, their uh, breast cancer lifetime risk could be about seventy percent. And for the ovarian cancer, they are different uh, by genes. For the BRCA1 mutation carriers, their risk could be about 40%. And for BRCA2 mutation carriers, their risk could be about 20% during their lifetime. So it's still a very big increased risk. So for men then, for say pancreas cancer, for prostate cancer and so on, what are, what's their increased risk? Okay, so how about uh, pancreatic cancer? We know that for the general population, the lifetime risk is about 1%. So, However, for the carriers, the lifetime risk was about 3%. That is three times more. And for prostate cancer, uh, the lifetime risk for the general population is about 13%. But for the BRCA2 mutation carriers, the risk could be 30%. So, so with prostate cancer, it's a significantly risk, increased risk. For prost- and for pancreas, it's still a low risk, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a significantly, it is significantly increased. What does this mean for men and surveillance? Yes, so uh, I think uh, we have two main messages. For, the first is that uh, the male carriers should be aware of their cancer risks uh, as well. Because they should not only treat BRCA1 and BRCA1, one and two mutations are female-only things, but they should treat it as uh, applied to both males and females, and they should pay more attention to their cancer risks and to do more cancer screening. But it's hard, so to, it's hard to screen for something like pancreas cancer at the moment. Uh, yes, and that's, that's why our study is proposing and, uh, to have new studies to support uh, screening for pancreatic cancer. And how would you know whether or not you've got BRCA1 and BRCA2 if you haven't had a daughter or a sister or a mother with early onset breast cancer or ovarian cancer? Yes, the family history is a good indicator of whether you carry or not, uh, whether you carry the mutation or not. But uh, if there is no indicator in your family at all, you may have a large chance that you are not a carrier at all. Is there, any indica- is there any argument for population screening, screening for the BRCA mutation? Oh, that's a good question. Yes, we have published another study. It's, about, it's, 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 for, um, female, it's for breast cancers only. And we have provided evidence that instead of using family history as an indicator to screening BRCA1 2 mutations, screening all the breast cancer patients would be more cost-effective. But for men? Uh, For men, we do not have such evidence yet. Now, does this give us any insight into non-BRCA cancers or what might be driving um, non-single gene cancer risk? Sorry, I'm not, So in I'm other words, is there anything that you can take for this into the general population apart from screening 
or, or it's simply confined to people who've got the BRCA genes, BRCA mutations? Yeah, yes. Well, we, we think that the carrier should get more screenings. And if they had a blood relative who also been tested to be a carrier, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this man should also get tested uh, to know their cancer risks. And is it expensive at the moment to get a BRCA gene test? Uh, to my knowledge, it's, uh, the cost is, has decreased. And uh, I believe that it will further decrease in the future. Well, that's good news. So thank you very much indeed, Shui, for joining us. Thank you very much. Dr. Shui Li is Senior Research Fellow in Mecca Epidemiology at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Mecca Epidemiology, Tegan, I'm impressed. Well, normal epidemiology just wasn't enough for him. No, no, that's right. But uh, very similar echoes to the interview that you had with uh, Jason Kovacic. Oh, yeah, the, the power of genetics is just fascinating. The thing that really got me about that interview, Norman, was it made me wonder whether you said that there's no screening tool for pancreatic cancer, but I wondered whether something like this gene could be like a proxy screening. You, you're at least kind of calculating someone with a higher risk of getting it. Yeah, but then you've got to have a test. So there is a potential test for it, but it's not one that's really doesn't lend itself to mass screening. It's some gastroenterologists offer a service called endoscopic ultrasound. So this is where they do a gastroscopy. They put a tube in, uh, into your stomach with a, an ultrasound probe. And from your small intestine and your stomach, they can actually get a really good view of your pancreas, which is really stuck in behind your, your bowel. And then they can pick up whether or not there are any abnormal lumps. The trouble is, and it's like a lot of other screening, is that if they find a nodule in the pancreas, it's not that easy to tell whether it's benign or malignant. And if it is on the border, you're not quite sure what to do because some of these nodules may not turn into cancer, a bit like thyroid cancer. So these are unproven tests at the moment, but uh, they probably will have some utility in the future if you're not screening too many people. Yeah, and I suppose this genetic research is providing more precision about which people might need to have screening down the track. Correct. Well, Norman, it's mailbag time and it's been a long summer with lots of questions coming in and some feedback as well. So well, let's start with a piece of feedback um, just to keep you on your toes. Um, we've had someone writing in basically saying that they were listening to the report that we did in November about platelet-rich plasma injections for knee osteoarthritis and basically the upshot of the story as as we covered it was that it didn't seem to do much good. And this person has said they listened to that report and they know that there's actually been a lot of trials that have found for and against the use of platelet-rich plasma for this and um, is just sort of wondering whether we need to have a, a better balance in the way we reported that story. Yeah, and the author is Associate Professor Mark Russo, a pain specialist in Newcastle. And that's right. So he's arguing that, in fact, there, there have been about 20 uh, trials of platelet-rich plasma of knee arthritis, positive and negative. But when you bring them all together, there's a positive effect of platelet-rich plasma. And really, uh, by the way, there were two studies we did on this. It wasn't just one that we did over time. There were two studies on platelet-rich plasma, both showing the same thing, a negative effect. I think one was ankle and one was knee. But what he's saying is that these new studies need to be incorporated into that big analysis when you pull all the data to see whether it's still positive or negative. So that's a good point to make, Mark Russo. Thank you very much for writing in. Yeah, and we do love your your feedback, positive and negative. Um, it's good for us to be kept alert of what's going on. Yeah, well, but, uh, Mark, Mark was, sorry to interrupt, but Mark was pretty positive at the end saying he's going to keep on listening to the health report. Oh, thanks, Mark. That's a relief. <laughs> 
Uh, and then a question now from Joanna, who's asking about pricey bowel cancer drugs, which are now going to be more affordable under the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. But really, the upshot of her letter was, why are drugs so expensive? She asks, are fabulously valuable ingredients used, extraordinarily complex manufacturing re- regimes, or is it all about patent copyright and unlimited greed? Well, first thing is that it might be afford- more affordable, which is not insignificant for the um for the patient they're on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, but for taxpayers, they still cost a fortune and are very... Right, someone's he- paying for it. Well, that's right. We're all paying for them. And f- fair enough, we should be paying for for drugs that save people's lives or extend their people, people's lives in good health with minimal side effects. But they are outrageously expensive sometimes, and it is hard to justify. Now, if you talk to the drug companies, they will say that some of these new biologic preparations require a lot of um, difficult manufacturing, and that's true. Um, And they also say, well, it's cost us hundreds of millions of dollars to actually get it to the point of market. Now, we have had a story on the health report looking at actually the cost of getting drugs to market, and it's a fraction of what pharmaceutical companies say it is. And also, they tend not to take into account the fact that the original research that goes into many of these drugs actually occurred on the public pocket, either the United States, Australia, Britain, and so on, that British, Australian, French taxpayers pay, mostly US taxpayers, pay for that research, and then it gets taken into um, into these companies. Um, and then it is, they, they go through this complicated health economics analysis where they say, well, what's the value of this? So for example, um, there was one drug for hepatitis C, which cost only a few dollars to make, and yet they wanted to charge thousands of dollars for the course. And they justified that by saying, well, if they save a life from hepatitis C, then that's worth that money and you've saved a liver transplant and all that sort of thing. Oh my gosh, but people who have suffered from conditions are often people who can't afford to pay for, well, even just subsidised drugs sometimes. That, like hepatitis C, people are more more at risk of having it if they're from a lower socioeconomic background. Yeah, but the, but this was being paid for by the Commonwealth. So the Commonwealth actually in this, de- in this case did a deal with that company and got um, and, and got a much cheaper price, but it was still uh, an expensive price. And um, so it, it's it's about monopoly. It is about what you can get away with. And some of them are very hard to justify. And cancer specialists at the Memorial Sloan Kettering a few years ago claimed that they were going to stop using some of these drugs if they didn't get a significant discount on them because they couldn't see the justification. And then when you analyse some of these drugs... People who respond do incredibly well, and it's miraculous, particularly with melanoma, um, but increasingly with other other cancers as well. But there's a lot of people who don't respond. So let's say a course costs uh, $80,000, um, but if you've got to treat five people to get one person's life saved, mm. that's $400,000. So there's a lot of these equations in this uh, in these expensive drugs, um, which need to be you know taken into account. Now there are solutions to this. One is pay for performance; that you only pay for the drugs if they work. Another is your you know the tr- what you were talking about with Jason personalized medicine. If you can find a gene that's a set attached to the, the to the drug, in other words, the drug only the drug only works in certain people with genetic mutations, then you can be much more specific about who you prescribe it for. 
And the other thing, just on the critical side, is that when people have analysed the new cancer drugs that have come on the market, when you average out the benefits, it's only a few months of extra survival. But that hides the fact that some people do get spectacular results. It's a difficult area. Wow, Joanna's really opened a can of worms with that question. Um, another question from Catherine Norman. She has genetic hypercholesterolemia, so high cholesterol, but it's a genetic thing. And even though she's very fit, she eats quite well, she's never been overweight, she's now suffered, um, she's got blocked arteries, she's had, had to have two stents, luckily no damage to her, her heart muscle. But she mentions her mother who also had stents and had coronary artery bypass surgery at 78, which is kind of older than... Catherine is, and she's wondering whether is it possible that the hormone replacement therapy that her mum was on delayed her mum's disease? Yes. Um, the answer is probably not, that the large randomised control trial in the Women's Health Study a few years ago looked at this, and it doesn't seem that progesterone and oestrogen together protect against heart disease, although that was one of the theories behind it. But uh, it may be that oestrogen-only um, hormone replacement therapy, which you can only have if you've had a hysterectomy because unopposed oestrogen does increase the risk of uterine cancer, that it may be that oestrogen-only uh, HRT does protect against heart disease. So it depends on which form of HRT your mum had. Catherine's also asking about the side effects of statins on muscles. Yeah, it, it, some people get severe side effects on muscles, um, and you know, I'll make a confession. I'm on I'm on a statin, and for the first month or two, I had pains in my muscles, but they disappeared. And uh, it, it, more is made of it, I think, than 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 need be. So a lot of people get mild muscle pains, muscle aches, and some people get it very severely. But it's actually quite a rare side effect. The benefit of intense statin therapy at high doses when you've got hypercholesterolemia far outweighs uh, some of the discomfort that you might have to begin with. And Norman, I started this mailbag segment with a mildly critical piece of feedback from a listener, and I'm going to end it with a very glowing one. Laura has written in thanking uh, you and the program for speaking out about the use of ice as part of the uh, drug substance abuse series that we did earlier last year. And Laura says... As the mother of an adult son caught up in this sad and frightening situation, she was amazed that somebody actually spoke about it on air. She's been trying for four years to get help for her son in South Australia. She's finally accepted that there is none. And she says drug-induced mental illness is not treated like an illness at all. She feels unsupported, uh, stigmatised and has seen a lack of care in the mental health department and the police. So she says, thank you for speaking out about this problem. And if you want to know more about this, it's not true that there's no help. I'm not saying that you're not telling the truth. Um, it was a, such, such a lovely letter and, and heartfelt. But if you go to the Matilda Research Centre for Mental Health and Substance Abuse, which, who are our partners in that, in, in that series, they've got a lot of resources on ICE and bust the myth that there is no help available, even, if, even though services might, I think that's really what is being said, is that the services are light on the ground, but there is help and it's not a hopeless situation. And you should go to that website. They've got a, they've got a great set of information pages on ICE. Well, that's everything in the mailbag for you today, Norman. But, folks, you can send us your questions and comments. You can email us, healthreport at abc.net.au. And it's about time you sent one for Tegan. Why am yeah, I getting all question. these questions? Yeah. <laughs> Make it a difficult one. We'll see you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.